the world's first independent virtual reality museum. We'll talk with Stuart Semple about his vision for a new gallery that only exists in virtual space. Local art schools look towards post-COVID opportunities as restrictions on attendance begin to lift. And a Swedish developer is releasing a board game based on the challenges faced by museum curators. I'm Tim Stackpole and all of that is coming up on Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again. And as restrictions around the coronavirus begin to lift, I noticed quite a few listeners enjoying the podcast from the US, Germany, the UK and Canada. It's great to have you along. And it certainly is an international episode this time around. First, though, in doing our bit to avoid contributing to a second wave of COVID infections, we still haven't returned to the studio, but we should do so from next month. But that means, of course, that we still don't have access to the podcast prize wheel. It's doing okay, though. I can assure you because it has sent me a few selfies during lockdown, so no concerns there. But the folks at Pixel Perfect Pro Lab are still sponsoring the wheel and their support goes towards the transcripts of our interviews as requested by those who love the podcast but are hearing impaired. Pixel Perfect is the Pro Lab for the photographic professional and they've traded right through the COVID crisis making sure that those who need the service can do so safely. They give special attention to photographic reproduction requiring perfect colour and rendering. And if you haven't ever used their services, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab do offer listeners to this podcast a 20% reduction in the cost of their first order with Pixel Perfect. So just head to pixelperfectprolab.com.au for more info. And if you do want to download the transcripts of our interviews, they're available within the description of each post at www.insidethegallery.com.au. Okay, let's get on with the show. Necessity is the mother of invention. And in this edition, we really do take a look at the innovation that has arisen from the challenges we've suffered over the last few months. Let's first head to the UK and catch up with Stuart Semple, who is likely better known to you for creating large-scale public projects for cities including Melbourne, Dublin, London, Moscow and Manchester. His most ambitious was Happy City in 2018, in which he created several large public interventions throughout Denver, which was documented in the Amazon Prime documentary Mr Happy, if you want to go take a look. Today, however, he's turned his attention to VOMA, the Virtual Online Museum of Art, an immersive gallery that utilises video gaming architecture and design to create an exhibition space only on the internet. Stuart joins us from the UK via WhatsApp. Stuart, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here with you. Now, this is such an exciting concept that you've come up with. First of all, can you describe what it is you propose? What I'm proposing is um, the world's first virtual art museum. And by that, I don't mean a website where you flick through pictures. I mean an actual virtual space that's been built from the ground up to give a whole new experience of looking at art that actually operates like a museum. So there's specific exhibitions, curated shows, solo projects, an educational program where you can see the greatest artworks on loan from other institutions, somewhere that anybody can go for free on their web browser, on their phone or in their VR headset. And I was going to ask you about that. I mean, in terms of creating the technology to put behind this, I mean, I guess there's a lot of different disciplines there. 
yeah it's complicated um mm. basically the people at the forefront of this are gaming companies right um, we see it in games like fortnite where maybe there's like 12 million players mm. on at any one time so we're, we're collaborating with um game makers cloud computing experts and cgi artists that can make things look really beautiful and get that level of interactivity that, that we want from the space and in terms of curation, Stuart, will you be bringing in artworks that people are already familiar with, like World Masters, or are you looking at creating a space where perhaps art that we haven't seen before is available to view? So it's basically both. My uh, dear friend, uh, Lee Cavalier, is going to be the director of the gallery, and he's curating it. So he's putting together a program. But we're very lucky because it's you know it has no location, so it's nowhere, so it's everywhere. So we can have a truly international dialogue there. We can show great old masters like a Caravaggio painting next to something new that was made last week, I don't know, in mm. Iran or something by some artist nobody's ever seen. And it's that kind of intermix and interplay that that we can do here that isn't really possible in a geolocated space. Yeah, and most curators are somewhat controlled by the space that they have. But I guess because you're building in a virtual world, if you need to add another wing to your gallery or museum, you can just do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so much easier. It's liberating. You know, we don't need drills or ladders or if we need an extra light or we want something to hang somewhere where it can't, you know, it's amazing. It's so liberating to work in that space. Yeah. And do you envisage this as becoming like as well known or as well established as like the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art or the National Gallery over there with you in the UK or perhaps the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Sydney? I don't know. I mean, that would be a dream come true, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be good if it just keeps going. If it works, that would be good. No, it'd be nice if people visited it and used it and it became a resource, um, that, you know, that, that people enjoyed. And it'd be great if it was up there with the mm. great museums one day. But we'll see how it goes. And I'm kind of wondering, too, I mean, you would have thought about this prior to the world being shut down, as we've seen um, across the last couple of months with COVID-19. But it's ironic that it seems so timely because of that. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So I've been playing with the internet and art for about 20 years. And all of those projects have been about democracy and access to art. So I was the first visual artist to put an artwork on iTunes, for example. I mm. actually made a virtual gallery in 1999. But the technology was rubbish. Everyone was on dial-up <laughs> modems. It wouldn't have worked. So this has been a dream for a long time. And I think with the COVID situation, I was thinking, actually, let's do a really meaty big project while we're all in lockdown, something that we come out of that is beneficial. And um, really, COVID kind of spurred me to do it in a lot of ways because mm. the art world's coming online. They're making the most of being online. But I'm not really seeing the level of innovation that I'd like. It's still JPEGs on websites by the most part. Um, so I'm hoping this will be useful forever, you know, and something good will come out of this horrible situation. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing you've put, and and your colleagues have put a lot of money into this themselves. First of all, how are you going to close the project off in terms of the dollars that you need? And then secondly, how will you continue to fund it? Yeah. So I've put the last of my money into it, mm. um, which wasn't enough. So we went to Kickstarter. We did crowdfunding campaign. Um, we needed to raise 5,000 more to finish it off. The server space is really expensive for like high data games, by the way. Um, mm. So, yeah, we hit our target within 48 hours, which was brilliant, Yeah. Um, which means that we can finish it off. And then going forward, we're hoping that people will donate. Um, you know, that's my big hope. 
that when they leave, if they had a nice time, they'll they'll leave a dollar, and um, that will that will keep us going. And we'll also look at institutional funding, like the Arts Council here in the UK, and some other grants um, that are available. So we we really want it to be free. It's it's not a commercial project. So yeah. we're, we're hoping to run like that. But let's see. And you could probably attract, hopefully, benefactors as bricks and mortar galleries and museums do as well. Yeah, I don't see see why not. And as long as their ethics are aligned with ours, maybe even commercial sponsors can have their logo somewhere or whatever. I'm not not kind of against that um, if it, if needs be. So we can pursue all of that. But the main aim right now is to get the thing open. Yeah, um, get it done. And the other thing is too is because it's not restrained by borders. Of course, you're talking about going to your arts council in the UK, but there's no reason why you couldn't necessarily approach art councils right around the world in various countries if perhaps it could tie in with some level of uh, marketing or promotion to a worldwide audience, I guess, in a way. As you say, as long as it aligns to the ethics that, that you hold. Yeah, I think so. And um, I mean, obviously, we will be bringing in international shows and we're talking to museums around the world right now about partnering with us and collaborating with us in collections and um, even collections of images. There's some people who collect really big high res files of images and um, really, you know, we, we're not borrowing artworks, we're borrowing pictures of artworks, which makes the mm. job a lot easier. Mm. And the other thing is, too, with private collections as well, I mean, they're withheld from us. With your proposal, of course, you could take private collections and depending on the agreements that you come up with with the, with the collectors, you could have an exclusive presentation of a collection, which would make your proposal even more unique. Yeah, definitely. And Lee's already having conversation with private collections mm. of things that people haven't seen for a very long time. And we're looking at work that hasn't been exposed for a while. You know, some difficult ones like Nazi looted art and things like that. We're looking wow. at giving a voice to to things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be amazing, you know, because I think about, as you say, you know, playing Fortnite or Minecraft, although I'm guessing your resolution will be a little bit uh, or somewhat better than than what we see on Minecraft. Yeah. But even going back, you know, you were talking about the, the dial-up modems, you know, back in the late 90s. And earlier than that, you know, games like Wolfenstein, where mm. you had these uh, these castles or these keeps or whatever they were called back then, yeah. where you would navigate through, and and you really are taking an extension of that. In but the, but the VR side of it is really the thing which is probably even more compelling, oh. because you do immerse yourself in that gallery by having yeah. those visors on. It's next level like what i'm seeing from mm. the geek for, you know i'm going to call them the geeks but what i'm seeing from the geeks <laughs> is literally blowing my mind every time they show me it, mm. it what is possible mm. now is off the charts it's moved so far i played wolf 3d back in the day i know exactly what you mean it's um it's not that now you are in this thing and it is real and yeah. you know you can be outside the museum and look down at your feet and you're going to see the grass and you're going to pick up a pine cone and then you're going to walk in and you're going to get so close to the van gogh painting on the wall you can see every brush stroke how the light reflects off it then you're going to walk into the cafe and talk to people like it's not anything like what we've seen before this stuff i mean we're even thinking about audience participation are we going to let you draw a mustache on the mona lisa like we can oh. like, not that we will but it's possible and that's exciting i know i know but are you crossing the boundaries of of defiling somebody's work <laughs> quite possibly i mean i'm not saying we'll do that but we might <laughs> let you write you know you might be able to draw on the wall somewhere or um yeah, you know, add something to the space or whatever. So we're playing with all that. I mean, it, it belongs to the audience. And collaborative uh, tour guides. I can well imagine that you could have people from all around the world and your tour guide could be in, 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 in Tanzania or the Antarctic. 
hundred percent. And we've already looked at what it is to to lead a group through the space. Um, it's it's there. It's it's weird. It can do it. Yeah, it's all possible. It's it's amazing. Incredible. Now, you did mention Kickstarter um, a little moment ago. Mm. In terms of your craft as an artist, what's your position mm-hmm. on, on other artists? And do you have any advice for other artists or even other galleries who are thinking about using crowdfunding in order to develop their art, in order to not just sell their art, but also lift the market recognition of what they do? Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing because you have a direct relationship with the audience and they come with you on the journey of developing what you're making. And actually, that's really nice because you get that input and that dialogue in the work that you're making. And crowdfunding makes total sense, um, particularly online. And it narrows the gap between yeah you and the audience. It's a great, great thing. And a lot of people are, are willing to support an artist or, or, or the creation of something new to be part of that. And um, I think it's a beautiful thing. We're very lucky that it exists. So where do people go now in order to see what you're doing and perhaps even make a contribution even outside of your crowdfunding? Yeah, so the crowdfunding is still running for another month, so you can still donate. Um, oh, okay. And you'll get uh, to come to the private view and you'll get virtual sculpture and you'll get uh, the tote bag and the museum poster. So you can still do that for the next few days. Uh, and that's on kickstarter.com. Or you can head over to voma, V-O-M-A dot space, which will be where it will be when it's done. And you can put your email in there and um, I'll let you know when we've opened the doors and then you can come and visit. And that'll be nice. Yeah. It's a terrific concept, Stuart, and I'm really excited that you took the time to speak with us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, and I'm glad you like it. That's Stuart Semple there, talking about VOMA, his virtual online museum of art, which, as he said, you can learn more about by signing up for updates at www.voma.space. We'll head to Sweden shortly to talk about a new board game called Curator. But first, COVID-19 will continue to have an impact on anyone alive today and could well be talked about in history as much as World Wars or the Great Depression. And the past few episodes of this podcast have pretty much been occupied on how the situation completely shaped our experience with the arts. Galleries and artists all impacted, as well as larger teaching institutions. But what about the more local art schools? Jennifer McNamara is the founder and director of Artest, a very popular and highly regarded art school located in the inner west of Sydney. Normally they would hold around 50 classes a week, offering advanced classes for grown-ups as well as for teenagers and younger school kids. And it too has felt the effects of COVID-19. Jennifer McNamara is on the line. She's joining us as well via WhatsApp. Good to have you on the podcast, Jen. Pleasure. Happy to be here. I would guess that your school has never really faced a challenge as significant as it has over the past two months or so. It's been a major upheaval to our um, courses and to what we do. But funnily, when I first opened in 2008, uh, the global financial crisis hit. So, But the difference then was I was a growing business and I had no track record and, and nothing to compare it to, whereas as we've steadily grown over the last 13 years and, you know, have, have become quite successful, um, it's been a very different different position to be in. Yeah. So in terms of what you've had to do, any changes you've had to introduce or closures you've had to undertake, I mean, how have you made it through the past, well, what is it now, two months pretty much? It is. Look, originally, I think like a lot of other businesses, we were just watching and waiting to see what was happening globally and, and then more locally. And on 
Friday the 20th of March, we made the call to cancel our Easter school holiday program because it was quite evident that the peak hadn't quite reached as far as the coronavirus pandemic was happening Mm. and um, the school holidays were not going to happen as we knew it. So I cancelled those uh, classes. And then over the weekend, when the Premier, um, I heard, was about to announce that the state was going to go into pretty much a lockdown, I made the call then to suspend our classes for the rest of term. We were at the end of week six of an eight-week term and with two weeks to go, and I just felt that it was the right thing to do. And for everyone's um, safety and well-being, it was um, the decision that I made on that day. So, but how do you cope with what the balance sheet is going to look like over that period? Because like you said, you know, it's watch and wait, not know when you're going to be able to open again. I mean, now it all becomes about how you're going to manage business, really, doesn't it? And the thing for me was the uncertainty around it. Mm. Not knowing is really harder to manage than having some kind of key dates to work with. And so knowing that, the Premier was about to lock down the state. I thought, right, this is a decision I have to make now and then we'll just deal with the fallout that comes with that. So we had two weeks left of term. It was too quick to pivot to online classes for all of our Mm. classes. Some Mm. of our tutors did embrace that for maybe one class to wrap up the term, but most of them we just couldn't do that. But on that day I contacted each of my tutors to let them know what I was planning uh, and then I just emailed each of our student groups to let them know that this is a decision we had made and you know wholeheartedly everyone just supported the decision and and also knew the inevitable was about to happen but what I did do knowing that my tutors would then be out of work for an unknown period of time until we get back to business as usual was that I actually invited the students to rather than ask for a credit or refund on their balance of their fees if they would like to gift that to their tutors Mm. And I have to say, I was just blown away by the generosity of, of the students who just said, yes, please, just, yeah. you know, I don't need it, just please help the tutor. And, yeah. and that was really extraordinary. And the tutors were themselves just really grateful and, and quite blown away by the support they received as well. So now we're looking at coming out of perhaps a, a period of hibernation. There's a lot of speculation regarding a second wave and all that sort of stuff too. But how well do you think your school and your business as well will bounce back? And and again, I guess you're kind of wondering what's going to happen in the future. Mm. I think during this time, like over the last couple of months, we've tried to stay as active as we possibly could under a new normal. So we did offer a much reduced program of, of classes during the school holidays and went online. Mm. And so we had 27 classes over nine days where we would have had 100. So we were operating at 25%. Over the last couple of months, I've uh, adjusted my way of thinking and the way we run the business and not necessarily look at it being a profit-making business, but just a survival business. And not just surviving Mm -hmm. for me, but to provide courses so that our students could still enrol in and our teachers could still conduct for them so normally I you know I have a a bottom line where I think well I can't run that class it's not going to be profitable but at this time I think well if if it's at least covering the cost of the tutor then I'm going to run the class because then it's a win-win for everybody. And in in terms of new opportunities that come out of that Jen I mean will you think about an underlying online opportunity going forward in case you any any of us are ever presented by this again? Yeah absolutely and 
in fact, it's it's pushed us to do things we've never done before. We might have thought of, but just put in the too hard basket and let's just focus on what yeah. we do well. And, you know, we're a studio-based art school. We love having people coming in here and having that face-to-face contact. But we've discovered through the online teaching is that, particularly for the adults, we've attracted students from all over Australia. We've now got mm. people in a class from Northern Territory, Queensland, South Australia, Victoria, uh, country country New South Wales, and even a former student who moved to Seattle said, oh, great, so I was doing, can I do the class Sunday night my time is Monday morning your time with Marie Mansfield. That's exactly what I want to do. So she's joined the class mm. as well. Ours are very much real-time interactive with the tutor giving feedback and teaching, sure. demonstrating and students asking questions. So it's as close as possible as it can be to um, a real-time a studio-based class as you're going to get. The, st- the students have all got their um, little studios set up. They can have a wine while they while they paint if they, <laughs> they do. Uh, but also what we've found is that there's one particular class where there's about five artists who have signed up for it who are all fairly accomplished in their own right. In fact, one just won the Glibly Art Prize. But for them it's a way of connecting through an art class from all different parts of the country and and doing professional development and and having social interaction at the same time. So mm. it's opened my eyes to what's possible and I've been discussing with some of these some of our tutors such as Marie Mansfield and Nicole Kelly about actually continuing to run online classes in tandem with studio-based classes. You mentioned how you were surprised, not so much surprised but a little bit overwhelmed in terms of how your students, your your clients, I guess, in in a way, were generous towards your tutors when you had to shut down. But was there anything else in terms of the community reaction that you saw which surprised you? I mean, you have a great level of community exposure. You're well known in the area for the classes that, that you run and facilitate. But did, did anything else stand out for you in terms of how the community reacted to the position that you and your tutors were in? It's It's actually been really heartfelt that just the anecdotal um, uh, comments and, and people just meeting me in the street when you're allowed out <laughs> or phone calls or emails and just in, in response to, for example, the, the email that I sent asking people would they like to gift the fees, just the little comments I made, just everyone's supporting each other and just stay safe. Mm. Um, yes, we do have a high profile in the local community and beyond and I think everyone generally is just wanting to support other people in their community you know all local businesses are just reaching out to help each other and it's it's really it's it's I think there are silver linings in this whole COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah and this is as much a business discussion as it is about art and galleries and schools. Ahead of setting up Artist you had a significant business experience particularly in marketing how have you taken advantage of that experience to make sure that your business has been resilient through this and and will remain resilient for any other challenges that come up in the future? We've always strived to have a diverse offering, mm-hmm. to rely too much on one particular area of business, I think is risky. In that regard, I knew that I would be able to survive this um, downturn but also there's been, you know, government support generally for small businesses, which has been really helpful and just um, helped alleviate the pressure on all of the, the outstanding bills that 
everyone needs to continue paying, even though they haven't got the, the revenue being generated mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, but I think diversity and being able to think creatively about how you can continue operating under different circumstances and knowing what your customers want. So, and, and for our students, like a lot of them are very senior. And so they're not really that computer literate, but mm-hmm. so many have embraced online learning because they're just so keen to stay connected with each other and with their art. And they've been prolific. We've created Facebook groups for each of the different class um, categories. And this, that's a peer-to-peer group. It's not a teaching structure. But the students are all uploading photos and sharing the work that they're doing either in their class or between classes. And it's actually been really um, wonderful to see what they're doing. And I think we could have done that ages ago, but we just didn't <laughs> something so simple. So that's been really nice too. And generally we have an exhibition of student work in the middle of the year and that is work that's been developed in the first six months and we're thinking, oh, well, they haven't had any classes this term. But, in fact, there's probably a lot more work they could exhibit. So we're still going to run that at the end of June and hopefully by then we can actually have um, an actual opening in the gallery, whether it's an extended opening with, you know, booked time so that we can monitor how many people are here at any one time. And we just have to do things differently, except that nothing will be the same as it was. And, and that's kind of a nice thing as well. I will, however, miss the sausage sizzles that you uh, often run <laughs> out in the car park on, on your special open days. Yes, well, we haven't had one of those for a while, but yes, they, they were good fun, weren't they? It all sounds pretty positive, Jen. I mean, you're, you, you seem to be in a fairly happy place, you know, even considering the difficulties. I'm optimistic, absolutely. I believe that art is therapy and it's something people turn to when other things aren't necessarily great in the world. And at this time, as was during the global financial crisis, which we survived as well, I think people look to things that nurture them. Um, You've only got to see what's happening around all these, you know, people posting stuff on Instagram and Facebook about what they've been doing and they're creatively cooking, they're creatively painting and doing activities Mm. and knitting and all these different craft and and, um, other sort of artistic pursuits are, are, are occupying their time and their mind and their imaginations during the lockdown. And I think that's been wonderful, but I also think they can't wait to come back in and have that connection with like-minded people who share their passions in a space like Artist. And hopefully they'll be able to do so very soon. Jen, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Happy to be here, Tim. Stay safe. Jennifer McNamara there, dealing as much with the business aspects of managing under COVID as well as having to run the art school. And if you want to take a look at the extensive nature of the operation, head to www.artest.com.au. Finally now, let's head to the town of Linköping in Sweden, where Pablo Joma is developing the board game called Curator. And it's about the business of creating a collection, running the museum, dealing with space. And Pablo, who does have past experience with releasing board games, joins us on the podcast. Thanks so much, Pablo. Thank you, Tim. Now, this is a very, very unique subject for a tabletop game. How did this all come about? What inspired you? Well, uh, to be honest, when we picked up the game from Jacob, the museum theme was already there. Uh Uh, It wasn't as strong as it is now. 
but uh, it was there. So it was kind of Jacob's idea. And I think what has inspired him was a little bit like the old museum world, like uh, gathering objects like in Indiana Jones. Oh, yes. So Jacob, is it Jacob is a colleague or associate of yours? How did you meet him? And, and he'd already done some design, I guess. Yeah. So I actually met him uh, through selling our old game. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I met him uh, through a friend and we had like a designer's meetup. And that's where I played Jacob's game the first time. Right. Uh, and I really liked it. And I also really like museums myself. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a very big fan of museums. So I was, uh, I was really, I really liked the team. So then we started developing it together. And away it went. Now, in terms of the development, as you talked about, Jacob already had some basics in place. Then you went on to determine more extensive gameplay. I mean, what, what's the thinking behind that? I mean, do you have a certain criteria that you think about when putting a game together? Well, we were looking for a kind of mid-weight game, something that was a little bit bigger than the game we had made previously. Mm. Uh, also, we were looking for something that had some type of unique feature to it, uh, so it would be easier to kind of market it. Yeah. Uh, and when we tried Jacob's game, it had uh, a really cool feature with uh, some action selection ships that we hadn't seen anywhere else. So we were immediately very interested in it, but it also had some problems uh, mm. that we could see, which because we are aiming at like a broad kind of family market uh, and hobby gamers. Yeah. And we wanted something a little bit simpler. So we felt like we had to make some changes. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started to introduce uh, the tile building. Uh, and we also introduced the secret loan contracts, <laughs> which are the contracts that carry kind of the uh, objects from different museums. Right. So let's just wind back a little bit. You're talking about this. Are you able to briefly but simply talk about how the game works? Uh, yeah, sure. You're actually a curator or a head curator of a museum. So you're kind of uh, the role, the leader uh, that is trying to expand the museum and its mm. collection. And mm. to your aid, you have your five employees that are represented by ships in the game. And so you're actually expanding uh, from like a small uh, board uh, on your table uh, with uh, uh, like polyominoes, Tetris tiles right. uh, that are representing kind of uh, wings for the museum, so kind of expansions. And so you're expanding the museum and at the same time you're trying to place objects in them. And you're trying to do this in a certain way to complete uh, loan contracts. Right. Because if you do, you can borrow a different uh, famous object from <laughs> uh, more famous museums. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, we had to do some concessions to kind of make it fit mm. with the museum theme. And, mm. uh, but there are actually loan contracts in real life. They don't, they, they are not, very specific about how the museum should be built. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, some com- concessions were made, but I think we kind of kept uh, uh, many things uh, true to like the museum spirit. So, and to win the game, you have to ensure that your museum and all your wings are built and then all your exhibitions are in place. Is that how you win the game? Uh, you actually try to accumulate the visitor points. So usually they we play with victory points in board games, but we made a little play on that. So you're actually getting visitor points. Visitor points, and you get okay. Them from dif- doing different things. Okay. Uh, yeah. So everyone wants more visitors coming to their gallery and their museum. But you you came up with a, a number of characters, some of which are those that go looking for the exhibitions. Some are those which build parts of your museum as well. But in terms of finding the names for the characters you went about a very interesting way to get those names. What we did was uh, uh, we're crowdfunding the game. So we wanted everyone to kind of join in on uh, giving suggestions for the character names. 
and then we kind of filtered them a little bit because well some suggestions didn't fit very well with the game we wanted to have like a more mm. serious tone mm. and then we put all the suggestions that we thought were good fits uh, into a vote and so everyone could take part in kind of like a yeah. online vote for the names yeah uh, how many players in total can you have in the game well, it's uh, from one to four players. So there's a solo mode. And that's where actually the characters become more important as well. Uh, because they will kind of join in on uh, the solo missions. You spoke about how you enjoyed visiting museums when you were younger um, around Sweden and Stockholm. And Sweden has many popular museums. There's the terrific Vasa Museum, that Viking ship. There are museums in various cities around Sweden as well. Um, Uppsala, Linköping, where you are. Of course, I think the... The Air Force Museum is in Linköping, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, it, it, there is a museum here. Uh, and uh, we usually visit it uh, quite a lot because they have a really good kids section as well. So uh, we bring the kids over there. And also in um, Gothenburg or Göteborg, as you call it. And of course, the ABBA Museum as well, which is very popular too. But were you surprised when Jacob first introduced you to this game that no one else had come up with a similar concept for a museum board game? Uh, yeah, we were actually a little bit uh, intrigued by that because uh, we, we didn't know about any museum board games at the time. I think there was one like uh, that was very, very uh, old that had done something museum-themed and it wasn't very successful. Uh, and we were kind of like, I, I think yeah, the board game industry is kind of like looking for new themes. And I felt like, well, this is a good theme, so it should probably be popular just because it's new. So that was kind of a good fit. And then the, well, when we had decided on the, the name, uh, like uh, we decided that it was going to be called Museum first. And I think it was two days after that that uh, another game revealed, <laughs> another publisher revealed that they were going to do a museum game called Museum. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, so so there is another one, but there's a, I think there's three now so, or something like that. Uh, and so they right. have a little bit of a head start. But the, in the board game industry, it's not so competitive. It's uh, usually kind of we're trying to help each other instead. Hmm. It's interesting. Now, the game has already won some awards, I understand, even before release. Yeah, we took part in uh, several design competitions, uh, and uh, we we had the luck to win one of them, and we placed second in another one. And it's been it's a really good kind of opportunity to uh, spread the game, and that's why we joined it. We didn't expect to win, and so we were really really happy when we. If we were announced the winner. Well, that's great news. Now, as you indicated, you crowdfunded this whole project. Now, and, and as part of the crowdfunding, people could pledge and receive a copy of the game, but it's likely that people will be listening to this podcast after the campaign closes. So what would the plan be for people who would want to pick up a copy of this game after the campaign closes? Is it available online? Is it available in museums? It will be available online even after the campaign completes. It might be a few days where it's not available, but then we will try and make it available as a, it's called like a late pledge. And usually it will be a little bit more expensive, kind of more closely yes. priced uh, as it will be yep. when it comes into retail. We're hoping that a lot of museums will want to <laughs> to of course. Uh, to take it into their shops. But I think some of them will also require that they are in the game. So we're still hoping that uh, some museums uh, will hear this and maybe reach out to us and uh, offer us to maybe have some photos of their objects uh, in the game. Oh, is that uh, how it works? 
yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we've contacted several different museums to oh. to kind of get uh, their allowance to uh, have the pictures of the objects uh, in the game. Some of them charge us a little bit for it. Uh, others have given it up uh, for free. So. Wow. All right. That's, uh, I mean, certainly getting everybody involved in it, including the crowdfunding, but getting the museums involved uh, is a great way to move ahead. And Pablo, I think it's a very unique direction that you've taken here to think about a board game called Curator, which is just perfect for galleries and museums. And I wish you all the very best with it. Oh, well, thank you very much, Tim. Pablo Joma there in Sweden talking about this new game, Curator, devised by Jacob Westerlund, which is underway under development. But if you want to learn more, look up curators at kickstarter.com. You might be able to make a late pledge. If not, head to Pablo's website, which is www.worldshapers.se. And that is the podcast for this edition. If you need any more info or want to click on a few links about what we've covered, you'll find all the details at www.insidethegallery.com.au. And there's also links to our Facebook and Instagram pages, so please like and share so you never miss an upcoming episode. Thanks too for the ongoing support from Pixel Perfect Pro Lab for all your professional print and photographic reproduction needs. I'm Tim Stackpole reminding you to continue to practice social distancing as locally advised and keep supporting the arts as best you can. Bye-bye for now.